it is all about, whether it be sports or life or, you know, in business, you've got to be able to block out the noise, focus on what you can control, and maniacally execute against those objectives. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. I've got a whole new personal regime going on right now. I'm doing this cold plunge. I just bought a cold plunge. Oh, man. In and the backyard or what? Yeah, okay. I'll put it in the backyard. And I tell you, the first day I did it was three days ago. Mm-hmm. I hadn't done one for a year since I played sports because I was a, a college athlete. And it had been a long time. So I, I, I got this thing. I read all about it. I'm like, all right, I'm going to get a good one. Mac Daddy, put it in the backyard. I got in this thing, and my brain was basically saying, get the f*** out. I mean, I was... Hyperventilate. I have 14 and 16 year old boys. Thank God they weren't there because they would have been laughing their asses off. But anyway, talk about grit mindset is like, I'm doing this every day. I don't care until I'm in day three and day three today was this morning. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm doing it every morning. How long are you doing it for? Three minutes. Three minutes. What temperature? 48 degrees. That's cold. It's cold. So I you're mean, like going, you're, you're I, not. I'm literally getting up in the morning, doing my stretching routine. 48 degrees is like what the, isn't that kind of the end goal of like, that's a I pretty started, cold I started at 50. It? I started at 50. Now they say you can get down to 46. All right. Okay. So I started at 50. Now I got it to 48 and I started a minute and a half and then went to two minutes. And then I, today I said, fine, I'm going to three minutes because the reality is after you're in it for a minute. Your whole body, I mean, it changes. Everything calms down. Like your breathing calms down. You bought it sight unseen, meaning you hadn't really done it. Like you didn't go to the local gym to see what it would feel like. No, Like when I put my mind to something, (laughs) I'm doing it, right? I mean, it's, so I read this book, Outlive, it's out by Peter T. I don't know if you follow uh, Ferris, but you know, Peter T. Anyway, talks about the, the benefits of sauna and cold plunge. Yeah. So I bought both. I got a sauna in my house and I got a cold plunge now outside and I'm doing sauna four days a week, 20 minutes a day, which is amazing, you know, benefits that have been proven. Uh, science uh, has really established uh, yeah. know, the, the benefit and then cold plunge, same thing. I'm rolling. I've been doing the sauna for, I don't know, four weeks now, but the cold plunge I just got. I get a little nervous anytime something is this trendy and it's trendy. It is it's very trendy, trendy, but it's data driven. I mean, I'm a data guy, yeah, right? Yeah. So I really don't buy into trends unless you know, show me the data yeah. that supports the reasons why I should go not only invest the money, but the time yeah. to go do this. And the data is unequivocal. So let me ask you this. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Do you work out religiously? I do. Like uh, how much? Uh, I can only do three days a week now weights because I've, I've had to have three discs in my neck replaced. And so I can't. Okay. So three days a week, but religiously. And then four days a week, zone two. Yeah, uh, cardio for 45 minutes. And then I do one VO2 max day to where I'm going full tilt for 30 minutes, you know, three minutes on one minute off uh, okay. for 30 minutes. So that's, I mean, that's my workout routine. And do you eat well? I do. And do you sleep well? I sleep well. I'm working on sleeping longer. Okay. That's fair. Right. I mean, my job is obviously demanding and uh, I'm a father first. Yeah. So I've got 14 and 16 year old boys that, uh, you know, both playing sports and 
you know, very active and a lot of things they're doing in life and they're my first priority. So anyway, it, I, I don't get the eight hours I like. Yeah. And typically, in fact, I got my aura ring. So this morning it was six hours and 45 minutes. Yeah, not bad. And that's pretty much what I get. The reason I ask is because my mother doesn't drink alcohol. Never and has. And I've stopped drinking. I still have a glass of wine from time to time with dinner, but I almost... I never drink except for a glass of wine with dinner. And I used to be more <laughs> indulgent. Yeah. So she doesn't drink at all. Okay. Has never drank or just doesn't now? She'll have like maybe a few sips of champagne, but doesn't drink. And I get lectures from her all the time about, you know, I should not smoke a cigar or I should not drink or whatever. And I always say, well, you don't work out. You know, like you work out like twice a week or you don't eat that well. Like you actually have dessert pretty much after every dinner, no matter what. And, you know, your lunches aren't super great and you are super stressed, incredibly stressed. So you don't sleep that well. But we're drawing the line on drinking. My point is on the like these trends, right? I kind of scratch my head like, God, most people, it doesn't sound like you're one of them. Most people get really excited by this idea. I'm going to get a cold plunge. Yeah. I'm going to get it. And I'm like, you don't even sleep. You yeah. know, like you're not even working out. Like we're not even getting past. Yeah, you got to do the get, basics. That's why I get worried about these things. Because I'm like, man, most people haven't even made it, done the blocking and tackling. Yeah. Is that I, fair? Completely. It, it, I think it is fair. And I think the three things that you've got to build, you've got to establish as a baseline before you think about cold plunge or sauna or any of this other stuff is you got to eat right. Yeah. You got to exercise regularly. And you got to get a good night's sleep. That's fair. Once you get that established, and, and the sleep's the one thing, again, I, I need to get closer to eight. But anyway, uh, the rest of it, I've been pretty consistent with for a long time. Yeah. Diet and fitness, candidly since college. Is it hard for you? It's hard. I tell you what's harder now is I'm in my mid-50s. Dude, you're in great shape. I'm in good shape for my age. It's harder to maintain muscle mass. I mean, they talk about it. The only way to combat it, and a lot of guys are doing it, is TRT. Uh, I have not. Uh, decided to do that. What uh, is TRT? Uh, testosterone replacement therapy. To yeah. bring your testosterone levels up to your age. Yeah. Right? If I was in my, I'm guessing, mid-30s, right? Yep. And uh, and to be able to maintain them there, then you can actually maintain muscle mass. You can actually put muscle back on because, I mean, that's what wanes when you get to be my age, you know, mid-50s. But outside of that, uh, yeah, I'm, good, I'm in good shape. Are you using VO2 max to measure how you're progressing or not? VO2 max I'm doing to sustain... It's all about heart health. Yeah, uh, to sustain you know my capacity. Yeah, uh, from a heart uh, health perspective, and that's really it. Yeah, uh, okay. I know I'm not. I don't do races, and and I'm not doing any of that type of thing now. I went to UCSF only a few weeks ago to get my VO2 max done, and I want to start baselining every few years just to see how I'm progressing or not. Are you trying? Is that something you're focused on? Trying to VO2 max? It? Yeah, it just yeah. it seems to me from the research that I've read that it is one of the cleanest scores that you can get on how healthy you are. Yeah. Like it just seems to be one of the best measurements. And it's a big predictor for health span as well. Not just how long you're going to live, but how long you're going to live healthily. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, to be able to actually maintain, a, you know, a quality life. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree. It's an important one. And for those that are listening that don't want to go to UCSF or somewhere else and get some of these tests done, my Apple Watch, I looked at, because your Apple Watch actually shows you your it's called heart or health activity or something. It was incredibly close to the accuracy of my VO2 max. So you can get all that data on your watch. 
as your career gets bigger, as the responsibility of your job increases, do you find it harder to work out in the same way that you used to? That's a good question. I, you know, I, I find it for me more important to be diligent about that because of the amount of time and energy I'm having to put into work and, you know, as you elevate in your career and the mental horsepower that you have to uh, expand that I've got to find balance. I've got to have balance in my life. And my balance is being able to, you know, work out and keep my body, you know, maintained at a very high level, uh, which includes diet and some of the other things I'm doing now, which we already talked about, as well as, you know, balance, you know, from a personal life perspective, spending time with my boys, all that stuff is critically important for me. Because when I get out of balance, I can feel it. And that's when I'm not operating as a human being at a high level, at my mm -hmm. optimal level. And so it really takes focus. And so really what that means for me, I'm typically, you know, I have not been a morning person my entire life. Well, I am now. I mean, I get up early. It's, early. Only, it's the only way, you know, 4.30 to 5, uh, depending on the day. And, That's and, why you don't and, get and, that much and, sleep. And what time I go to bed. Well, you know, I mean, I, if, if I can get to bed 9.30, yeah. 10, you know, then, you know, 4.35, and, and typically I'm trying to get that done. But yeah, that's why I don't get a lot of sleep. But I can't because of the demands on my time up until that point. It's very difficult for me to get to bed earlier than that. But anyway, you know, that's when I get my work done. I mean, in my workouts and the cold plunge and, you know, my mobility works. I've got to do mobility work. That's one thing that I wish I'd done earlier in my life that I'm, I'm really paying for now is trying to keep my body mobile. And, you know, I do meditate and, you know, I think that's really important. But I get all that done uh, before and then work it out three days a week. You know, I, three days a week, before I'm working out in the morning. You got it. I'm getting that done before the kids get up. So then, you know, once the kids get up, you know, getting them off to school and then I'm off, you know, to my day and then we're rolling. And then it's, you know, it's usually a full day to, you know, six, sometimes seven at night. Yeah. If I don't get the workout done in the morning, I can't get it done. I yeah. hate the idea of it looming over my head throughout the day, feeling like I haven't eaten a frog yet in the morning. Yep. You know, as a kid, were you also this way? Like when you were growing up, were you this militant about the way that you took care of yourself? Uh, no. Um, I grew up in a, a small farm town, a little place called Yuba City up in Northern California, yeah. up toward uh, Chico where Aaron Rodgers is from. And no, I mean, you, you grew up in a, a farm town back then, you know, diet and, and, and all this stuff was not something that was in vogue. We didn't really uh, even know about the science around you know, a lot of stuff we're, you know, we're talking about. So, no, I mean, I was, but I was into sports from a very early age. I had a dad that uh, was an amazing, an amazing father. And he uh, was an athlete himself and, you know, played football in college and, and actually played in the Canadian League for a little while and, and was a coach as well as a teacher. But, you know, he coached three sports. And my brother and I, we just want to be like that. So, I mean, we were playing every sport imaginable from the earliest uh, years I can remember. Uh, and when I say everything, I'm talking about everything from running track to, you know, baseball, football, basketball. Uh, we didn't really get into soccer, but it was, it was those sports and it was, it was full throttle all the time. So I was extremely active and very, from a very early age, as I started gravitating to the sports that I really love, which were baseball and football, I had a passion and I was, I had a drive. I was driven and I loved the, just the process, the work that went into 
you know, preparing myself to play the game at a high level. And, you know, fortunately, my brother and I were both pretty good athletes, uh, you know, given, you know, good DNA from my father and my mother. And, you know, that, you know, propelled us on. But, uh, you know, no, from a diligence perspective in terms of my workouts and timing and food and all that stuff, no. At, at a young age, I was a kid, you know, just doing my thing. What'd you all talk about at the dinner table with your brother, your mom? And uh, mom, mom and dad, dad, mom, dad, brother, and sister. Typically, we'd recap the day and we did have dinner together, you know, every night that we were around. But when sports, when we got into high school, depending on what time practices got done for everybody, that was, you know, sometimes hit and miss. But, you know, we would recap the day. You're just talking about highlights, lowlights, and that type of thing. And then, and a lot of it was around sports. It really was. My mom was as passionate about sports and watching us and supporting us as my dad was. So, you know, it was typically a recap of the game or a recap of depending on what sport we were playing or what was going on the day. My sister was cheerleader. And, and so it was all about us kids and what, what our lives entailed and what was going on with us. But it was mostly around athletics. You talk about your dad in the past tense. Can you like what? Yeah, my dad unfortunately died uh, at a very young age, 69. In fact, he died on his birthday, which is very rare. Um, How old? 69. Wow. Heart disease. Which is one of the reasons why, going back to our earlier conversation, I am as diligent around heart health. All right, because that's something that uh, that does run in the How family. How old were but you? How old am I now? Fifty. How old were you when you? Oh, geez. Uh, Braden was my son was one year old. He died. My oldest met him one time. I was in my early forties. Okay. Right? So uh, I want to say I was forty. I was forty. You were forty yeah. when he passed. Yeah, I was forty. Okay. Fourteen years ago. Okay. It seems like he was a really important person in your life. Is there anything that you wish that he had gotten to see? Now you're going to get me to get emotional. Um, yeah, uh, he was talking about my dad a little bit. So he was an amazing example. By the for way, me. If, hopefully you don't uh, mind. No, no, no. This is good. It's all good. Uh, but you know, there's one thing that I will answer that is difficult for me, and a lot of it has to do with him not being able to see my kids and, and get to know my kids, and and for them to get to know him is is the most important piece. But I'll get to that in a second. Growing up, so I grew up in a very, I would say, lower middle class household in that, you know, my mom and dad were wonderful in everything they did to, you know, to give us as kids everything we needed to, you know, to have a great life. But we didn't have much money. My dad was a teacher and teachers back then, especially in the place I live, didn't make a lot of money. And my mom stayed home with us three kids. So she was a homemaker. And so my dad ended up working three jobs and, and, you know, he taught and then he coached three sports to make a little extra money. And Christmas time, he worked in a jewelry store to make extra money to pay for presents. And in the summer, he worked in a cannery. It was a superintendent at a, at a peach cannery, effectively, mm-hmm. in the town I grew up in and worked the night shift. So, I mean, he worked nights all summer long and slept, uh, you know, during the day. And he, But he would still get up to spend time with his kids. So when I saw this throughout my entire life in terms of the work ethic he had. And he always did it with a smile on his face and never complained ever, never one time ever heard him complain. But it was all for him about us kids because, you know, he grew up as a, he was a foster child and he was committed that his kids were not going to have the same life that he had. And as you can imagine, that left an imprint on me that still is very evident today and how I view the world and my work ethic and how I view my relationship with my kids. Uh, and so... You know, that being said, yes, I think about this a lot, in fact. In fact, I, I tell my kids they're playing, you know, sports right now, uh, both of them, and they're good. And God, he would have loved watching them watching play. play. Yeah. And yeah, that's, it's that as well as um, 
them, them having the same experience with him that I did in terms of just how supportive he was and um, the guy he was, the human, you know, the dad he was and the grandfather that he would have been. And yeah, I, uh, that's the one thing for sure. If I could wave a magic wand, that's something that without question, that would be my one thing. I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. You went on to Cal Poly, you're the quarterback of the football team. You built most of your career in sales and sales leadership, starting at WebEx. At what point did you want to be a CEO? Did you ever want to be a CEO? Did you always want to be a CEO? Was that even on your bingo card? The answer is no. It was never something that, you know, I had put on the dartboard to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go do this. That being said, from a fairly young age, so I, I played football was one of the sports I played and I was a quarterback. And it's one of the positions uh, in all of sports that you have to learn how to, in this delicate balance of being a team player. I mean, you're one of 11 guys on the field. And in a lot of respects, no more important than anybody else. But in some respects, without question, the most important person because everybody's looking to you to set the tone mm-hmm. for leadership and balance and confidence and what we can go get done out there. And I played in high school, and I was fortunate enough to be able to go on and, and play in college. I, I initially went to Idaho State. I got a scholarship to oh. go play football there. And whole coaching staff got fired, and Cal Poly recruited me at a high school, and I wanted to get back to California, candidly, and, and was able to transfer in and you know, play at Cal Poly. But through that whole experience, those life lessons that you, at the time, don't even realize how applicable they are of having this almost innate understanding as to how to be a part of a team but lead as being a part of a team. And so then as I transitioned into the working world, yes, and I went into sales because I felt like that was the closest proxy for me to be able to fulfill the void of being able to be competitive mm. and to, to have that same fire and the juices flowing and those wins, those sales wins, you know, feel a lot like, you know, big wins on the field at times, right? And so, you know, I really gravitated to that and, and built a career in that direction. But really at no time... And I was asked this along the way, did I ever have an aspiration to be a CEO? I always, always knew that I wanted to be a leader. Yep. And my answer was always for the right opportunity in the right circumstance and situation, if it made sense, if I was a really good fit and could have the level of, of impact that I felt like a CEO needs to have, then yes, if, the, if that opportunity uh, you know, is available, then I'll walk through that door. Uh, but it was never something I put on the board and felt like I had to do. Yeah, that's fair. You had a great run at WebEx, almost seven years more than seven years. And what struck me, and again, feel free to correct me if you think this is wrong, but you had three runs in a row, all two years or less after after WebEx. All like in owning the number in very serious senior sales leadership roles. The last of which was the CRO of a company. Like, were you reeling? Like, did did you ask yourself, this was in 2013 after the third one, was I just a product of WebEx? It was no, actually quite a bit different. I'd gotten guidance from a mentor uh, as I moved on from WebEx that talked about his investment in companies and the time he spends in companies very much like he views his stock investments as a portfolio. His point was at the two-year point, he took stock and would make a decision at that point, do I believe this company can get to escape velocity and can actually turn the corner either on profitability, go public, or is going to be an attractive 
asset for a strategic. If not, it's not a good investment of your time to stay at that company. You've got two years of stock. Take that stock, buy it, and then move on and make another investment. Diversify your investments mm -hmm. type thing until you get to the point where you know you've got something. Like you've hit on a company that has escape velocity, has those characteristics to where you're not going to go anywhere because you know that something special is going on there. And so that's effectively what I did. But I will tell you, after the third one, I made a decision. And those were all earlier stage deals, too. Mm -hmm. Those are all small companies. I did make a decision at that point. All right, I've taken three swings. It's time for me to go in later stage to an opportunity to that I, I think has a much higher probability of some sort of an exit, be it an acquisition or IPO mm -hmm. or what have you. And that's what I did with Achievers. Yeah. And we had an exit. We had a nice exit. You know, uh, Alfred Lynn from Sequoia was on the board. Tremendous respect for Alfred. He's now one of the general partners over there. And you know, I just felt like this was at the stage that made sense for me to go in to have the impact that, uh, that I felt I could have. And, and that one worked out quite nicely. The counter argument to the portfolio index approach would be, I can't tell you how many people quit Slack sub 200 employees. I cannot tell you how many people quit. Yeah, they're probably kicking themselves. Now, granted, I haven't even heard of any of these three companies that you left, so you probably did the right thing. But a lot of times, people seem to not be able to get out of their own way in these high-growth companies, and it's very difficult to tell the forest from the trees. Yes, but I'd been through all of that at WebEx yeah. and was one of the few not few, there's a number of us, a couple of which I've seen you've interviewed. Randy Zeus is one of them. Ryan and I are still good friends from those days. But, you know, look, when I was at WebEx, we went public right before the dot-com bust. And then Microsoft bought our number one competitor. Our, st our stock went from 28 to 5. And there was a mass exodus. Those of us that stayed around, but we knew what we had. I mean, irrespective of the stock, we knew that we were winning a disproportionate amount of opportunities. We knew we were transforming how the world was communicating because we were the first company to really bring web conferencing to, at scale to the world. And we knew this was special. And for a number of us, you know, we stayed around and just felt like we're going to build a great company here. This is going to be a transformative company. And it was. And that's what, exactly what we executed against. We knew the characteristics were there. Uh, because we were in it. We were in those knife fights every day. And, you know, a number of us, Ryan, myself, and others were rising in leadership as a result of others leaving and created opportunity. And we, we, we were afforded opportunities to do some really interesting things while we were there. But I knew what great looked like. The characteristics were there. So I knew that, you know, as I moved on to these other companies, I knew what we had and, and what it felt like and what it didn't feel like. And, mm -hmm. and that's, that, you know, it was really, you know, what led to the some of the decisions I made. But I look back to that WebEx experience a lot. It was seven and a half years, and we did a lot of things wrong, but we did a lot of things right, and we learned, but we had grit. You look at some of the folks that went on to do amazing things from that period of time, be it Dave Berman, Ryan A. Zeus, Greg Holmes, and so on and so forth, uh, you know, Ms. Trika, and there's a bunch of guys that uh, have, have just gone on to do some amazing things in the industry as a result of what we all went through together and how much we learned. The company that you did have a good run in Achievers after what we just talked about, spent almost five years there, four and a half years. It was a recognition engagement company. And what the company did was acquire a bunch of data around what motivates people. Yeah. I'm curious, is there any data that you took from that as a leader around the types of things that surprised you that were maybe obvious, not obvious, 
around um, intrinsic and extrinsic motivations for folks? The answer is yes. There was a tremendous amount I took from that whole experience in that it was the first company outside of WebEx, because we had a transformative impact on the industry and the world, but that when I would go in and meet with customers, I, I remember vividly this one large customer we met with, and they were actually getting emotional, like in tears around how we had helped them transform the culture of their company to develop a culture of recognition and a culture of gratitude and how we helped expose across hundreds of, you know, it was about 120,000 employees, all of the amazing work that was going on that no one ever saw before because there was no platform that really enabled all of this greatness to be brought to life so that folks could not only see it, but comment and like and applaud and the whole, you know, the, the whole aspect of social mm. recognition, which is what we were all about. And that was transformative for me from the standpoint that, you know, from that point, I, you know, I said, you know, regardless of what I do for the balance of my career, it's going to be at a company that's having this type of impact on the lives of the human beings that we that we affect, that use our software, that use our platforms, mm -hmm. because it was so darn gratifying to be able to go into companies and, and have that conversation, that type of conversation. And we had it over and over and over again. And we we're able to quantify the impact in terms of employee retention and satisfaction, of course, uh, which translates to bottom line. The data is now uh, irrefutable around that. And we learn how to be very purposeful in terms of, because what, behavior that gets recognized gets repeated in human beings. Right. If we get recognized for something, we get applauded and everybody around the company is you know, giving you high fives virtually and you know, in the social sphere, there's a high probability you're going to go do that again. Right. Mm. It's, it's just it's human nature. And so, you know, we had the ability to create different uh, programs is probably the best way to frame it within different functions of companies, whether it be sales. If we want if upsells like for uh, MGM was a, a good example, they wanted to drive upsells. Well, so we had a recognition uh, program, if you will, an initiative that recognized upsells, you know, at a certain level and above. And then everybody got, you know, visible on a leaderboard and got the attaboys and so on and so forth. It drove a 30% increase in the amount of upsells that were happening at the point of sale at the desk when we were checking in mm. as a result of these folks getting recognized across the company for the great work they were doing in line with, you know, the company initiative that they felt was important. And so, yeah, I mean, it was a wonderful four-year period at a company that was really having a positive impact on on the lives of the companies that we served. When you joined Reflective, you went from Blackhawk to Reflective. You got your first shot at the CEO gig. Was it what you thought? You spent a little over a year doing it. I don't know. Honest, honest reflection. Honest reflection. I remember this company, Reflective. Yeah, it, it, was, it, was, it was a good company that you needed some leadership. And needed some guidance. Are you kicking yourself? Like, fuck, maybe I should have just gone to be the CRO of no. I, I look, Zoom I, I had or something. You know, it's interesting. Greg Holmes called me early days on that one and said, "Hey, man, you know, I really, you know, I could use some help over here. You want to come up?" And I said, "Greg, I've, 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 we did the web conferencing thing for a long time. I, you know, I'm going to go do something else. This is before Zoom got really big." Mm -hmm. And that was one of those kick yourself, uh, you know, kick yourself mm -hmm. moments. Greg's enjoying himself in Montecito right now, living a good life. But hey, Greg, how are you if you're listening? Um, no, look, I had a wonderful, uh, you know, year and a half. At Ref I would I would have still been at Reflect. I mean, if had you to me not come calling, and I'll get to that in a second, I would have still been there. In some respects, it you know, you never know what you're getting into, I think, until you're in it. 
there were some real changes that needed to be made from a structural perspective as well as just you know process and how they were operating. But uh, you know, I had a, a great group of folks in there that cared a lot about how Reflective was helping to transform performance management. And yes, we had to make some changes in leadership and, and other areas of the business, but uh, we had made those changes. And unfortunately, though, you know, one of the challenges is it was financial crisis. I mean, there was some real you know, economic, uh, mm. you know, factors, right. You know, at that time that were obstacles that we had to deal with that going into it, the funding situation was a little bit different than I had expected. And so I'll just leave it at that. But outside of that, as far as operationally, I love the job. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was going in it was galvanizing folks around a common purpose, common mission and getting really focused on, you know, the one thing or the couple things that were going to really move the dial and identifying those leading indicators that we were going to drive the organization to and, and moving, you know, really a culture of recognition. I mean, and really kind of building that culture from the bottom up of, you know, what I learned at Achievers of recognizing the behaviors that we wanted to see that knew, we knew were going to, you know, lead to success in terms of the outcomes we were trying to drive. And I had a lot of fun. In fact, I brought some folks along with me over to Udemy, but, you know, Udemy came calling and it was just too good of an opportunity to pass up. Uh, and that's really what, what led me away. But I enjoyed my time there. But what's interesting is when you joined Udemy, you didn't join as the CEO. No, I, I didn't join as a CEO, but I joined new, knowing that that was the plan. So Greg Kukari. You were the president. Yeah, I was the president of Udemy Business. And Greg Kukari at the time was 68. And Greg said, hey, look, I'm 68. And by the time I'm 70, I'm going to go be grandpa. So I need somebody to come in here and help operationalize the Udemy Business business unit, which was growing at an explosive rate. And get that house in order in preparation for you to take over uh, when I uh, transition out and, and uh, you know, go spend time with my grandkids. And that's what we did. Did you believe him? I did. Uh, Greg was a straight shooter. Wasn't, uh, there, as, wasn't there risk? Well, there's risk in everything. Th- in but life, there's got to be people but, telling you like, hey, this is business. I believed him and... I also believed in the opportunity. I mean, I believed in the opportunity, what was going on within Udemy business, because I peeled the onion back pretty far before I jumped in and, and I knew what was, you know, what we had. I mean, just keep in mind last year when I joined, it was a hundred million dollar business. We're going to exit this year. And it was, you know, I've only been in the business three years, roughly 500 million in ARR. That's how fast Udemy business is growing. It's I mean, incredible. it's explosive, right? And I joined when we had just crossed a hundred million in ARR. The press release went out while I was while I was in the interview process. And so I did my diligence. I knew there was something special here, but I knew that it, it, there was a lot of work that needed to be done to, to, to professionalize and operationalize the business. And that's where I felt like I had meaningful value. And the other aspect of it was, yeah, I did believe Greg. And I had, as you could imagine, these conversations with the board as well. This wasn't just with Greg, but you know, these conversations were with the board in terms of the planning around me joining and the opportunity ahead. Now I had to execute. I mean, you know, if I don't go execute on the Udemy business side and if we don't deliver, then, you know, all bets are off. But there's risk in everything. I felt like it was in terms of, you know, weighing the risk it, without question, it was a risk worth taking. And, and it played out exactly how I'd hoped. Maybe 30 seconds or less. What does Udemy do? So for those of us that don't know, most people know Udemy as an online marketplace for skills development and to be able to actually go learn how to, you know, develop coding capability or, mm-hmm. you know, learn how to do a, a photography or what have you. The growth engine is Udemy Business, and and what we're focused on is helping organizations develop the skills that are necessary for them to achieve their organizational objectives, whether it be skills on the development side of the house, whether it be soft skills or business skills like performance management, whether it be project management, leadership development, management development, everything in between. 
uh, public speaking, you name it. We've mm-hmm. got a broad platform of content and learning modalities to enable you as a business leader, all right, if you're a CLO, to bring our platform in and leverage our platform to help you develop the skills necessary right, for you to achieve, again, organizational outcomes. So we're selling to you know, CLOs and chief people officers and now CEOs yep. with a platform that is really focused on strategic skills development. That's what we do. When did you go public? We went public uh, two years ago. Two years ago. And it's interesting because the private valuation in 2020 was $3.25 billion. You go public. Last I checked, it was about a billion and a half yeah. of market cap. You're doing revenue that's approaching 500 million of ARR, which is a lot. <laughs> like, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, you're relatively undervalued in many respects, just relative to your, like, and your growth, what's your growth rate? It's all public information. It's all public, yeah. What's the growth rate? So on the Udemy business side, yeah. uh, first half of this year, 41% revenue growth year over year at, like I mentioned, just under 500 million. Last year it was 68% coming off 320 million, right? 68% growth year over big year. Big growth rates it's on massive a pretty growth big rates. revenue base. On, on the Udemy business side. And then we have the consumer business, sure. which is our core uh, that, you know, the, Udemy started, as I mentioned, as a consumer marketplace. And that business is relatively flat. We just hired a new CMO and new chief product officer as well. Just started within the last two months. And we're very focused on a few things to address what you just mentioned, which is how we're valued in the public markets. One is elevating the brand and the story so folks can clearly understand the impact we're having mm-hmm. within organizations on a global basis. Over 60% of our revenue is international. So we're a very international company in terms of our footprint. As well as rationalizing the consumer business because you know what's happening right now in the investment community is you know, and we're working to shed light on the dynamics between these two businesses is why is this consumer business flat when this Udemy business business unit over here is growing at, you know, mm-hmm. an accelerated rate. And then there's the whole profitability uh, component as well that we, we just turned the corner on profitability. But, you know, in this macroeconomic climate, as you know, everything turned from top line focus to bottom line, uh, you know, about, you know, three, four quarters ago. So we've done a really nice job of managing through this macro and driving the company to profitability while we're still showing explosive growth on the UB side. But a lot of it's it's the story to the investment community. We're, totally. we're a little bit complex. We've got two different business units and, and we're working, we're going to work really hard going forward. And we have been uh, to uh, make a story a lot clearer, uh, easier to understand. So folks lean in. Do you, um, I don't know, got to be asking yourself, like, can't we streamline this? Yeah, like, we're, we're working. We're working like, on doing some like, things. Your core competency is growing the business, the B two B side, the B two C side, which is where all the DNA and and gravity of the company's origins come from, is not what the B two B side is. Now, maybe that could change. The public markets are telling you that they value your B two B side and that they relatively see the B two C side as an as a not as exciting. You must be asking yourself. That seems like a very obvious streamline opportunity. Yeah, we have a good plan and we believe that the outcome is going to be a much clearer understanding as to how to think and value the business in totality mm-hmm. with respect to the consumer, the interplay between the consumer business and the enterprise business. All this valuation stuff, thinking back to your days at WebEx, it's just a fucking distraction. Isn't it annoying? Like, I don't know how else to say this, but isn't it just the whiplash of things that don't actually matter to the business. Now, they matter to the employees. Don't get me wrong. But the idea of going from a really big private valuation to then going public to then 
the stock market bottoming out to then a new CEO coming in to then, you know, all of these dollars and cents that people get really wrapped around the axle on. It ultimately is just energy that you're spending that otherwise could just be focused on the business. Like as a CEO, that must weigh on you to make sure that people are spending every ounce of energy on the things that matter and not worried about things like the stock price. I talk about it all the time. In fact, I was on an all hands with our Asia Pacific team last night and we were saying exactly that. Is it, you know, our job as leaders is to deal with a lot of the, you know, the Sarah and I, our CFO, to deal with a lot of the interaction with the analysts in the street and what have you. But we want our employees, I want our employees focused on the things that we can control Right? We've got a very clear thematic goal for the company in terms of what we're driving toward around one Udemy. And we've got very clear objectives and leading indicators that we're rigorously measuring and holding ourselves accountable to that give us line of sight on being able to achieve that goal. It is all about, whether it be sports or life or you know, in business, you've got to be able to block out the noise, focus on what you can control, and maniacally execute against those objectives. And that is what we're guiding our employees to. And forget about the stock, right? The stock's going to take care of itself as we continue to execute at a high level. I mean, last quarter, we beat top and bottom line, right? And we've got a very strong company. We know uh, what we need to do to clear up the perception, and which is mirroring the reality of how strong this business is and the value and impact we, you know, that we deliver. And it's going to happen over time, but that's exactly right. It, it can be a distraction. And, you know, I'm doing a lot uh, to make sure our employees you know, really don't view that as a distraction in their daily lives. Because we've got 1,600 employees that we need to have laser focused on getting done what they need to get done in support of our thematic But what goal. can you do? Like, don't words eventually start to feel hollow? As a leader, don't you get a little nervous that, like, it's easy to say, you know? What can you do? Yeah, I think... I'm actually it, genuinely. It's also, it's also actions. I mean, they, you know, I try to do exactly. I mean, I embody what I'm saying. It's not for me. It's not rhetoric. It's when I'm not invest, interacting with the investment community, it's focusing on what we can control that is going to lead us to exceeding our objectives in terms of the outcomes you know, that we're committed to. And uh, I mean, it's how I live my life. I mean, we talked earlier about the stuff I do every day my body, my diet, and so on and so forth. Those are the controllables, the things I can control. It's the same thing in a company. When I come every day, you know, I'm planning ahead, you know, from night before and I'm coming in, I know exactly what I want to get done, uh, what I'm trying to, you know, accomplish and making sure that I'm very focused on the stuff that's going to move the dial for the company uh, and from the seat that I, that I sit in. And, you know, if everybody does that, the rest, the noise, let that fly by. I mean, it's, I take a lot of it back to sports, you know, let them write whatever they're going to write. But what happens on the field is really all that matters. That's all that matters. And in the daily life for our employees, what happens in the eight, nine, 10 hours that they're getting their work done and how productive they can be to accomplishing what they need to accomplish to get 1% better and for us to move forward toward those objectives, that's really all that matters. The rest of the stuff you can't control. So, you know, you've got to be disciplined enough to let it fly by. Now, the reality is, how do you embed that? Well, we, we do communicate a lot with our employees and we repeat that message over and over and over again. And we try to stay as connected with our folks as we can. You know, that includes flying around and doing stuff that, you know, I'm going to be in Turkey next week and India in a few weeks meeting with our teams and, 
and making sure that they're hearing and seeing it from me and, and from our leadership team in terms of what the focus really needs to be and, and the why. You make a to-do list every day? Before I go to bed. Every night? I do. How long does that list tend to be? Typically, I review my day for the next day and see what I've got on tap. Because as you can imagine, as a CEO, I've, you know, my calendar is pretty full. And you know, I'm looking at the, you know, the various meetings and then what do I want to accomplish in those meetings? Uh, you know, what am I trying to get done? What do I need to get done? What are the outcomes of those meetings that I want to make sure that we nail or that I nail? And then anything beyond that, I'm syncing up, you know, usually in the morning on my drive in with my EA and making sure that I've worked in lockstep, covering everything off and, and anything I need her to do to help, you know, support, you know, scheduling or what have you. But, you know, that's the way that I move. And, uh, you know, it's also a recap, like at night, it's recapping the day and that's a quick recap. All right. You know, what worked, what didn't work, what do I need to carry forward? And then it's about tomorrow. When you make a to-do list, is the goal to get through everything the next day? Do you try and cross off every bullet on that list for the following day? No, because sometimes my schedule uh, is fluid uh, and things will jump in and out and so on and so forth. So I don't get maniacal about it if I, if I don't get you know, one or two mm-hmm. things done, as long as there's a good reason for it. But really, you know, it's more about prioritization. You know, the things that are most important for me tomorrow. Yeah. The most important things that I need to get done tomorrow. Uh, you know, the, yes, uh, yeah, I hold myself really, uh, accountable to getting those done. And then I give myself some flex that there's usually a couple things that if, you know, when I have free time, you know, spend time here, right. You know, this is, this is where I want to, you know, allocate that free time. But yeah, the priorities, the answer is yes. Uh, you know, there's some of those to do's that are non-negotiable. What are the buckets of most important for you when you create a list of to do's what are the things, the types of activities that tend to be at the very top of the list that are non-negotiable for you to get done? If I'm meeting with employees, it's the message I want them to walk away with. What are the two or three things that I want them to walk away from that call being really clear on and that I've done a good job articulating mm-hmm. uh, those messages? If I'm meeting with the analyst community, which I'm doing a lot of analyst calls, it's the same thing. What are the two or three things that I want them to walk away from that call being crystal clear on as they're thinking about you to me and, and again, reshaping how they value uh, the company. We're doing uh, FY24 planning right now. So for me, uh, you know, we're, we're you know, leaning into, you know, really getting ahead of that. And next year is going to be, a, you know, back to growth. So right now I'm working very closely with Sarah and we're having a lot of meetings across the company, making sure that we're being really thoughtful about how we're planning for that growth. How do you know, like, again, I guess maybe... The obvious answer is you don't know, but how do you think you know that it's time for growth again? There's a couple things uh, because we've been in the in terms of green shoots. We've been you know white knuckling here for for a a while for a good what eighteen months? Uh, Yeah, I think that's about right. At least twelve. Yeah, at least twelve. Longer than twelve. Yeah, Uh, I I take it back to. Well, I mean, it was really Q3 of last year for us, so going into Q4, but it's going to be, Q4 is going to be, I think, more of the same. So yeah, at least 12, if not, if yeah. not 15. We look very closely at sales cycle velocity at the various stages of our sales stages on the enterprise side of the house. And we know exactly how long it has historically taken us to move through each of those stages, how much they've elong- those stages have elongated through this last mm-hmm. 12 to 15 months, and what's happening now, right? So we're looking very closely at the early stages right now to understand, you know, what kind of improvement are we seeing? In right? speed to the next stage. You got it. It's exactly right. Because as we start seeing velocity through the top end of the funnel, 
that's a predictor that it's going to continue if, you know, historically, you know, you know, we've seen those those sales stages being pretty accurate in normal times. And they have been because we've got, you know, years worth of data. So that's, you know, one of the uh, you know, things that we're really looking closely at. The other one is I'm pretty closely you know tied to and I spend a lot of time. It's not going to surprise you coming from the go to market side of the house with our top customers. In fact, I was just at an executive advisory council with our top customers last week in Napa and spending a lot of time understanding what they're seeing, how they're thinking, what their investment plans are looking like and what have you. So we've got a pretty good finger on the pulse as to what's going on within, you know, a lot of our top customers as well as the sales cycle velocity. So we're triangulating, right? It's not one thing, it's multiple things we're looking at. You know, we're not throttling up right now, but we're planning for it. Uh, I mean, Salesforce just announced they're hiring 3,000 folks. It just came out yesterday, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, green shoots are there, but it's still too early to call. The game is coming out of the you know, the macro. It's hard, man, isn't it? Like you're trying to get your company messaging in order. You are managing employee sentiment and mojo. You're flying around the entire world dealing with all this shit. You're hiring new executives. By the way, you're learning new skills on the job as a second time, but let's just call it like in earnest, real first time CEO, right? Like at this point in the company, you're probably having another eye on the public markets right now, weighing where your business is today versus where the public markets are. Like there's no way you're not looking at Instacart today and seeing what's happening, which by the way, it's up like 35% which is awesome. There's no way that you're not looking at that stuff too. You're not a public market guy like this, you know. So you're learning all these things in some ways, probably pretending like you know exactly what's going on because we all are. We have no idea. It's got to be a lot. Look, I'm having a blast. Uh, you know, I'm intensely curious. So even coming into this role, I, I reached out to a number of other CEOs that uh, have run public companies or running public companies to understand how they think about, you know, various aspects of the job and, you know, interaction with the public markets. That was the one thing that I didn't have, but we did plan, I think, pretty well for it. I started joining earnings calls, three calls before it was announced that I was taking over, right? So I started joining and actually taking Q&A and, and so on and so forth. So I got to build relationships mm-hmm. with the analysts that cover us as I, you know, moved into that transition. Now it signaled a little bit, but they weren't surprised because again, Greg was 70 and, and you know, he, he had fully planned to transition. So anyway, that being said, but look, I've spent a lot of time talking with other CEOs and board members, you know, asking a lot of questions to inform, you know, my approach and, and really how I've, uh, you know, handled moving into this job and, and dealing with the public markets. The internal stuff, although my last job as CEO, to your point, was a year and a half and it was a smaller company, but Blackhawk and other companies, you know, I mean, I've been, you know, the number two guy, arguably, in a number of different times and a number of different companies. And I've had, you know, a lot of experience leading mm-hmm. go to market as well as, you know, larger organizations. And so that was a very easy transition in, um, you know, but all of it together. I tell you, I love the challenge of it. I'm a hyper competitive guy. I love the challenge of getting up every day and having the multiple disciplines that you just walk through. Uh, that I've got to be able to juggle and manage uh, while still, and one of the things I pride myself on is, and this really does come from my sports background, is you know, is being balanced, right? I mean, the highs aren't too high and the lows aren't too low. You can't get too excited. You know, it's the old thing, you know, saying you're never as good as they say you are when you're winning and you're never as bad as they say you are when you're losing. And it's very true. So right now our stock is not where we'd like it to be. Am I 
anxious about that or are we acting any different? No, right? We know who we are. We know what we've got in terms of the value and impact we're having. Uh, we have a very strong plan. I've got a great senior leadership team. Uh, we're going to go execute the plan and we know we're going to deliver the outcomes because we're actually tracking to the leading indicators that I'm holding ourselves accountable to that are the highest predictors of success long term. So, you know, I feel very good and, and uh, calm in terms of where we're at. But, uh, but at the same time, yeah, it's, it's part of the job. There's a lot of balls you have to, you know, to, yeah, must you know, be to the, juggle. Must be the ice baths. When you went to those CEOs, is there a piece of advice that stands out to you that anybody gave you? Yes, one. Don't react to the analysts. Don't run your business based off what you hear from the analysts and what they're telling you. It's a fool's errand and it's a recipe for disaster, right? Develop the plan. It's what I just mentioned. Develop the plan that you and your board and your senior leadership team believe is the right plan for the company and stay the course. Run your business. Don't allow them to, you know, influence how you're running your business. And, you know, without question, that resonated and made sense. And that's, that's what we're doing. I was excited to talk to you because there are not too many CEOs in Silicon Valley that come from go-to-market. Generally, the CEOs are still the founders or the founders are still the CEOs. And generally, those founders are technical and product oriented rather than go-to-market oriented. There's a few counterexamples to that, like Mark Anderson, who took the CEO job of wherever he took it. Anyway, from Palo Alto Networks. Was there something that you felt cross-functionally that you had to go upskill yourself when you took the job? Like, was there things that you're like, you know what? If I look at myself in the mirror today, I need to get better at this. Like, this is not something that I've had to do before and I got to go figure it out. Not so much that I had to go personally invest in becoming a product expert or develop a uh, developer or what have you, take courses in development. Although with Udemy, I could. But for me, it's always been about having enough self-awareness to understand what my strengths are and functional areas and or disciplines that are not my strengths hire the best darn people in the world you can find to come in and fill those gaps. And that's what we've done, right? We just hired an amazing CMO, Janefa, coming from 5.9, HP Enterprises and what have you, and to help us come in and build the brand and elevate our go-to-market motion. And an equally amazing chief product officer uh, who recently came from Outreach, and he's got two years experience re-architecting that platform, foundationally uh, leveraging GPT-3 and now GPT-4. And so he's got the experience uh, from an AI standpoint that we needed to help really take that big next step in developing you know, new and exciting and, and revolutionary learning experiences for learners within companies as well as individuals. Because we have that opportunity at scale with 75,000 instructors to enable them with AI tools and capabilities that will enable them to transform how they deliver learning. So that's how I think about it is what are the areas that I'm strong and have a, a deep understanding, i.e. the go-to-market side. And, you know, I've got a great leadership team in place there. And then go, you know, if, if necessary, go hire the folks to fill in those gaps. And that's how I think about it. What's the toughest feedback anyone's ever given you? That's a good question. Early in my career, it was at WebEx actually, I was having a challenging conversation with a boss and he told me that I was, that I just was not 
being coachable, that I wasn't, I was not listening and, and, and the conversation, uh, you know, escalated a bit and his approach really rubbed me the wrong way, the way he was going at it. And yeah, I mean, it was a tough conversation and one I did apologize for afterward, but I tell you why it was tough because I'd always, I'd always been and viewed myself to be extremely coachable. I wanted the feedback. I've always kind of felt like, and this goes back to my youth. The only way I know how I can get better is if you tell me what I need to improve on, right? It's like, give me the feedback, give me the feedback. And here was this guy telling me that, and, and using words that, uh, you know, he was some colorful language that, you know, that I was not being coachable and what have you. So that was a really tough conversation. You know, we got past it and had the conversation uh, subsequent when, when we both cooled down in terms of how he was thinking about things and how I was thinking about things. And it did cause me to, you know, alter my, my approach a little bit with him because it needed to. But that was a difficult conversation because, again, I just felt like that was that went against everything that I believed in. Can I revisit the AI comment that you made? Yeah. It strikes me that in this moment in time in the world, there's this very exciting technology that we at Kleiner Perkins are also very excited about that we believe is the real deal. However, it also strikes me that a lot of CEOs and founders are really excited about ways of just infusing this technology into their company rather than figuring out how to augment what they're doing with AI in order to solve customer problems more effectively. And part of this, I think, is that a technologist loves technology. And at the end of the day, you still need to apply that thing into customer solutions. How do you think about that? I imagine you have probably more of my orientation, but how do you think about that? Yeah, no, look, we are... Does that make sense, by the way? And do you agree agree with that characterization? Versus internal and external operating leverage, operating leverage internal versus investing and developing capability to drive customer value? Correct. Rather than just putting a wrapper of your existing product with ChatGPT and saying you have AI so that you can say that you have AI. Yeah, no, no, I, I completely understand. It's one of the reasons why we went and hired Prasad. Uh, because we were already starting to work. I mean, eight months before ChatGPT3 was, uh, was launched, we were already working with the team uh, mm-hmm. on GPT3, right? You know, eight months again before November 30th. And we had a consultant come in and we were doing, a, a, you know, a lot of work because we knew it was coming. Most folks in Silicon Valley knew it was coming. And that work was underway, but it was a very, and still is, somewhat tactical approach to developing capabilities that we know are going to enhance the learning experience by which we can provide uh, those capabilities to our instructors as well as to our customers, but not necessarily transformative, right? And our belief, my belief is we have the ability to transform learning and skills development within organizations by completely rethinking how that is done in corporations. That's why Prasad's here, right? And that's our investment and that's our mindset. So, uh, we're thinking much bigger than just, to your point, tactical capabilities that we're, we're going to release as a wrapper and or an addition to or what have you, whether it be, you know, a co-pilot or Q&A or what have you. We're doing a lot of that stuff. But now we're thinking much bigger than that because we think we have that type of opportunity. I mean, we have massive scale. We've got 64 million learners on our platform, 75,000 instructors around the world. 
So for us to be able to enable these instructors and then as a byproduct, impact the learning experience in transformative ways and, and, and again, completely rethink how we all learn, couldn't be more exciting. I mean, we're, I really do believe we have the ability to build a transformative company and an iconic company, much like WebEx was and Zoom is and, and others, based on the need that organizations have to continue to upskill and reskill uh, their employees over time. I mean, just look at the numbers that came out on AI. Now that we're talking about AI, you know, last numbers I read, upwards of 100 million new jobs are going to be created between now and 2030, while 85 million are going to be, they're going to go away. Uh, they're going to be absolved through, you know, leveraging AI. So this huge transformation is going on. Organizations have to be able to deal with this. They've got to be able to reskill and upskill their employees in line with this massive transformation that's happening. We believe we have a very unique opportunity to help them with that and to be their primary partner as they're thinking about this whole process of upskilling and reskilling. So now we think it's a massive opportunity and we're leaning in hard. I can't wait to see what you do. I'm really excited, honestly. One other thing that I wanted to revisit with you was office hours. Can you talk about office hours at home? It strikes me from the conversations that I've had with others that know you that the lesson that it seems like you took from your father was that intentionality matters in the time that you spend with your kids. Because I think that you know that it is very limited. And I feel like you probably felt like you got robbed of some of that time. And so I wonder, as you think about the incredible opportunity in your career and in work with AI and blah, 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 how do you maybe reapply the lessons that you've learned around intentionality at home? That's an astute question, uh, based on the conversations you'd had. I'm extremely intentional with my time in that. Part of the reason why I'm so planful going into the day so I can maximize every moment that I'm working is because when I'm done and I've got my boys, I am present with my boys. My oldest is a junior in high school. In a blink, he's going to be in college and he's going to be gone. And they say 80% of the, you know, the time you spend with your kids is when they're at home from zero to 18 years old. I mean, the rest of it, you know, is, is really a coin flip but, you know, based off where they go to school and where they live. So, yeah, I'm extremely intentional. I know that it's fleeting. And I really do focus on being present uh, with whatever I'm doing. If I'm working and I'm in something, I am present. Right? If I am home and work is done and I'm with my boys, I'm present. Uh, I'm not thinking about work. I'm not thinking about tomorrow. I'm not thinking about that. I'm with them. I'm present. And, you know, we're enjoying our time together. And that's something that I hold myself very accountable to. You're right. I appreciate it, man. Are you guys hiring? I know you mentioned you're ramping back up. Is the organization hiring? If not, are there any key roles that you're looking to fill that you want to use the platform to shout out? Yeah, we are hiring. You know, we're being very selective and targeted in our hiring. Uh, so, you know, that's just a blanket statement. You know, key roles, you know, we do have, uh, you know, an important role for us as we're evolving, uh, Vice President of North American Sales. Uh, so, yeah, that's you know, definitely one that I would highlight that if there's folks out there that are interested, you know, love to have you contact us and um, have a conversation. And then we talked a lot about AI. So technical roles uh, where folks have experience in AI and machine learning, you know, without question, I think we're yeah, everybody that sits in this seat you talk to is probably mm -hmm. is probably highlighting that, and we're no different. 
And so those are the two that I would call out. When you hear the word grit, what or who do you think of? That's a good question. The first person that popped in into my mind was Tiger Woods in terms of grit. And why? Well, most folks that you know, are on the sidelines watching you know, athletes perform at a high level, they really do not understand how much hard work consistently over years that goes into enabling that individual to perform at that level for the extended period of time that that individual was able to perform at a level that no one had ever seen before. And whether it's Tiger or Kobe and the others, if you listen to them talk, it's the consistency over time through highs and lows, through injuries, through personal hardships uh, that were very public, their ability to persevere toward an end goal and not be deterred by anything that was coming at them. It's something special and to me exemplifies grit at the highest level. And there's a lot of examples, but that's the one that comes to mind. He's a controversial figure for you know some of the things that have happened to him on, uh, in the personal side of his life. But he played a golf tournament, won a golf tournament, U.S. Open, on a broken leg. There's not many human beings that would have been able to hit a shot with a broken leg, let alone go win the tournament with a broken leg. And that takes a special kind of grit with a special kind of focus and just commitment and resilience that is admirable. And, uh, you know, I, as much as I can, I try to embody, you know, a lot of those qualities in, in the work I'm doing. Craig Brown, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.